Good morning, St. Peter's. Good morning. I wanted to start today's lesson, today's sermon, with a question. Can you remember a time when you were thirsty? Really thirsty? I can. It was the day that I gave up commercial bus travel forever. And it's not because I have anything against commercial buses generally, but let me break it down like this. It had been a sweltering day in the middle of summer in DC, almost 10 years ago. I'm a southerner, raised in the deep south, so I've had my fair share of hot days, but I can't quite remember a day like this one. It's the type of day where the humidity is so high that you might as well be swimming rather than walking. And I found myself trapped on a bus with no air conditioning on I-95. Yes, we were parked on I-95. And three hours in to a four-hour trip, we had only traveled 50 miles. <laughs> it was miserable. And I'm not exaggerating when, the say, when I say that the bus had become a greenhouse. We were cooking on the inside. My mouth felt like sandpaper, and all the passengers around me were on the verge of fainting. Finally, after a small but peaceful protest, passengers convinced the bus driver to pull into a gas station. And what happened next was a scene straight out of a dystopian novel. <laughs> Us passengers, haggard looking, buckets of sweat dripping down our faces erupted from that bus. We descended on the gas station and proceeded to guzzle any available <laughs> liquid in the store. Some of us didn't even bother to pay beforehand. We were thirsty that day, really thirsty. And so too were the people of Israel, as we learn about in the book of Isaiah today. They were thirsty, however, not solely for physical refreshment, but spiritual sustenance. That is because the Israel that we meet today in the book of Isaiah, they were at a fateful time in their history. Times were dark for God's people. Israel is far removed from the golden age of David and his reign. Since David's reign, Israel had been on a downward slide, punctuated by only a few bright, bright spots. Civil war had splintered the kingdom into two. We now have the rival kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Faith in these two nations was largely an afterthought. Rebellion and idolatry had become the standard fare of the day. And all of Israelite society, from top to bottom, had been compromised. I mean, it was so bad that one Judean king is said to have indulged in the practice of child sacrifice. He murdered his own sons. And so, as you can imagine, within this context, injustice flourished needs of society's most vulnerable, the poor, the widowed, the elderly, they were not only under-addressed, they were overlooked completely. And to make matters worse, the Israelites were in the midst of an exile, having suffered a devastating attack by Babylon that left Jerusalem smoldering and a sizable chunk of its population in captivity. Israel's future looked bleak. And it is this weary and wayward nation teetering on exile 
that hears the words in Isaiah 55. After enduring the merciless assaults from the superpowers of the day, first Assyria and then Babylon, then being expelled from their homeland, was left of the Israelite nation hears these words that speak of national rejuvenation, national revival, words that testify to a promise that as Isaiah had foretold, would culminate in the restoration of Jerusalem and the coming of a king that would right all wrongs. Yes, it is these words of hope and promise that appear at Israel's doormat at this midnight hour. God invites the entire nation to him. He beckons, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy, eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Eugene Peterson's message translation puts it this way. Hey there, all you who are thirsty, come to the water. Are you penniless? Come anyway, buy and eat. Come, buy drinks and wine and milk. Buy without money. Everything's free. What an offer, right? How could you possibly react to this with anything but sheer joy. I mean, imagine receiving this invitation today. All right, some of us might honestly think that it's a spam, <laughs> but in our economy ravaged by inflation and runaway prices, you get an offer to check out a place where everything is paid for. You don't need money, you don't need cash, you don't need your credit card or cryptocurrency. Everything is free. All you need to do is get there. So what would prevent Israel from taking this offer? What would prevent you from taking this offer? One reason I can imagine, among several, is doubt. It's doubt about the promise maker, hear God. Now, doubting God's promises is not anything new. On the contrary, suspicion about God's ability to fulfill his promises, it's a running theme in scripture, and the Israelites need only look to their ancestors to find the precedent. Abraham and Sarah, Moses, the Hebrew people themselves. And the list goes on and on. Suffice to say, there are no shortage of skeptics when it comes to doubting God's promises. And that's exactly how some of the Israelites responded upon hearing the promises of hope and comfort contained in Isaiah today. In fact, even before the red carpet for this latest promise could be rolled out, there was already grumbling amongst the Israelite community. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27, we find the dissenters. There we hear the boisterous and loud complaints of God's people. Armed with what appears to be a track record of God's failure, his neglect, and abuse, the Israelites declare, according to one translation, that he doesn't care what happens to us. Now, what's driving the sentiment? Well, at the time, there was a popular belief amongst some members of the Israelite community that because the Babylonian exile had occurred, the Babylonian gods were simply superior to the God of the Hebrews. And this divine battle royale pitting the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac up against the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, Amal Marduk and Neroglesar, 
the exile of the Hebrews was incontrovertible proof of Babylonian religious supremacy. Now, before I move on, I must take a quick pit stop, as my favorite theologian likes to stay, and ask a question. Why is it that the Hebrews even believe this? I mean, in chapters 1 through 9, 39 in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah warns the nation over and over again about their impending judgment. He does not mince words. The wages of their transgressions would be at their own peril. In Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah is crystal clear that the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem will happen and that exile is on the way. Isaiah warned, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. So there, the Israelites had their answer, but few, if any, members of the Israelite community can recall by the time we get to Isaiah chapter 40 what had been foretold. The question is why? I might humbly submit to you that the Israelites had forgotten their history. The Israelites had forgotten their history in part because of the years and years of backsliding in their relationship with God. Failing to adhere to the covenant that they had reached with God jeopardized not only their spiritual well-being, but also their national collective historical memory because embodied within their religious rites and traditions were lessons about God and their history. Observing Passover, for example, was an opportunity for the Israelite youth to learn about God's deliverance and God's protection in Egypt, but also an opportunity to learn about how the Israelite people had come to be in Egypt in the first place. Gathered together at these religious ceremonies, the Israelite community told and retold their stories. And those stories showed a history inextricably intertwined with their God. They told stories of their forefathers and foremothers, their kings and their prophets. But here's the problem. As the people's love for God waned, these traditions imbued with deep historical meaning were cast aside. Does this sound familiar to anyone? A nation having a collective moment of amnesia about its history at a critical juncture in its national life? What did this mean for the Israelites, though? It meant that the opportunities to tell stories of God's faithfulness and love for his people, as well as Israelite history, had dwindled. So it is within the spiritually infertile and historically shallow environment that a generation comes of age. To no surprise, they have a fragmented understanding of their history and their God. That meant that the lessons and forewarnings of prophets like Isaiah have become fuzzy recollections, at best, in the Israelite community. So it is with this hazy memory that the Israelites hear the bold promise, the bold invitation to enjoy the salvation that is freely offered by God. Unlike today, where in many Christian communities, these words would be a sign of comfort and hope, these words ushered in doubt. But can you really blame the Israelites? Not only did they have this historical knowledge deficit, but they also were living under some pretty terrible circumstances. 
surveying the scene through their eyes, it would be hard not to come to the same conclusion that God had abandoned them. I mean, think about it. Their kingdoms had been plundered, their homes devastated, their children enslaved, their leaders pacified, and their spiritual practices left in shambles. Taken together, these circumstances reasonably suggested an outright abdication by God of any care, concern, or worry toward the Israelite community. And to be frank, I find their response all too relatable. Don't you? I mean, when we have our own storms in life, isn't it easy to think that God doesn't care about you? Trying circumstances, an unexpected illness, a job loss, a death of a loved one, or an unanswered prayer for us as individuals can winnow our faith. When we add to that the broader suffering and injustice in our world, our faith in God only further deflates. What results is a feeling of abandonment, just like that felt by the Israelites. David captured this feeling perfectly in Psalm 22, after reflecting on his own circumstances and the brokenness of this world. David cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the question. Buried beneath all those layers of doubt and insecurities and frustration with their circumstances, the Israelites were asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? It was the same question Jesus cried out in his darkest hour. It's the same question that we cry out in our times of hardship too. These words represent the inner groan of a spirit that has tapped out, a spirit that has reached its maximum capacity, a spirit that has resigned itself to the fact of living a life without God. Yet our spirit's inner groans are not left unanswered. If God were a texter, if he had an iPhone, God would not leave us, quote, left on red, as some of the young people might say. <laughs> no, God has a reply. He had a response for Israel. He has a response for you. How does God reply? What does he say to you, to us? He says, come, come to the waters. Come find rest for your weary soul. Come find refreshment. Come find security. Come find peace. Come find life. What I find so striking about the nature of this reply is that it confirms that God understood, had always understood what Israel needed and what we need. We need him, his presence, his love. Far from forsaking his people, God lovingly extends his embrace, beckoning his children closer to him because he knows the travails of our souls, of your souls. In gently extending this invitation, there's an echo of an earlier promise that appears in the book of Isaiah. And it appears in Isaiah 40. And at this point in the book, there's a shift from judgment to comfort, from darkness to light, from death to life. There, God boldly declares, do you not know? 
Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God's answer to Israel in exile and often to us in trying times is not, though it could be a change in circumstance, it is God himself. It is the everlasting God that endows us with strength to endure. A God fully aware of our humanity and imperfections lends his divine strength to us allowing us to persevere so that he could continue to bring about his purpose in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. Circumstances are fluid. They can change in a moment. But here we have a reminder that God endures, and through it all, his constancy is an anchor that we can hold on to in life's ups and downs. By holding fast to him, we can experience this miraculous renewal that is spoken of in scripture. We can have those wings that are wings like eagles. And just as eagles soar above the storms that are in their flight paths, God promises to help us soar above the fray and chaos of our own trials too. And though those trials will surely come, those things actually unite us with our creator. They don't distance us from our Creator. For like us, Jesus intimately knows trials and promises that we never need to walk through those trials alone. This is the great miracle of the invitation to come to the waters. It is that invitation heralded centuries ago to a downtrodden people which is the same invitation that Jesus offered on the shores of Galilee, which is the same invitation gently, Jesus gently offers to us today. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Come where you are not alone. Come and find rest. Come and find peace. Come find salvation. Amen.